regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi, listeners. This is Datacast, where I hold long-form conversation with our data practitioners to unpack the narrative journeys of Korea. My guest today is Bill Tuolos, who has been developing tools and infrastructure for data science and machine learning for over two decades. Previously, he was at Netflix, where he led the machine learning infrastructure team, and currently he's the CEO and co-founder of Outabouts, where he's building the modern human-centric ML infrastructure stack, continuing the open-source product called Metaflow that he developed and managed during his time at Netflix. So, Bill, uh, glad to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Fabulous. So I think this might be a good starting point for our conversation to kind of revisit your educational background. So based on my research, you got both your bachelor and master degree in computer science from the University of Helsinki in Finland. Mm-hmm. So you know, overall, how was your overall experience there? And maybe if you recall, was any particular favorite computer science classes that you've taken? Yeah, good question. Um, Well, now, I don't know if many of your listeners know, but they have this like quite an interesting system in Finland that all the uh, higher education is free. And like it used to be so that like people had also a lot of freedom to choose what they study and actually even the government like a support stat so you get the stipend. So it's an amazing system. I really enjoyed it. So I did my undergrad in, in, in computer science, also math and, and psychology, like which was really a good combination like for machine learning infrastructure now with hindsight. And uh, yeah, I mean, when it comes to computer science, I mean, many courses actually like like even the kind of the, the foundational aspects of computer science theory of computation. Also, I, I remember like we had some courses about the philosophy of AI, which I found fascinating, distributed computing, all that stuff. When I was at university, I was also part of this research group called Complex Systems Computation Group. I uh, got exposure to academic research, Bayesian modeling, statistical information retrieval. So that was an amazing school, uh, learning like really the kind of good foundation, like for all the, all the academic stuff, also the kind of really the, the different machine learning techniques. Also, we got to build like many interesting prototypes. So yeah, no, I, I think it was really useful. I, I The funny thing is that I, I think I kind of finished my uh, like, pretty much like did the, all the courses like really quickly at first thinking that I, I should graduate quickly but then like when I was part of the research group I, I decided to well I mean this is actually pretty fun and ended up staying for seven years <laughs> that's for sure I'm just curious these days you're working more on the engineering side of things but it seems like your background back then was more on the on the research side was there any particular reason that you didn't you know pursue the research part yeah no i mean definitely you know what happened is i was pretty much like i said that i want to um i, I like became a grad student I, i was thinking that like well maybe i'll do a phd maybe stay in academia but then like when i started going to conferences back in the day there were presentations at these machine learning conferences like NIRIPS and, and CIGAR and so forth. But I think like there was maybe something by Google, but I mean, at, back in the day, it was Microsoft Research, Yahoo Research. And I saw that like 
people at these companies, they had access to larger compute resources. They had larger data sets. And I thought that like, oh my gosh, I mean, the future of machine learning is going to happen at companies. And like, so if I want to do really the, the most interesting thing, I, I guess I have to kind of just like a, join like one of the big ones. And uh, I, unfortunately, I think that that was true. I, I still feel that it would be amazing. Like if academia could provide, and I do of course know that like many environments, I mean, like many places, like you can do amazing research, but I mean, especially when it comes to the data set and availability of the most interesting data sets, unfortunately, those oftentimes are stuck with large companies. Yeah, thanks for sharing that uh, valuable insight. I believe that during your time in school, you also worked at this startup called GuruSoft that planned to commercialize self-organizing maps, which is a, a particular title at the neural networks. Can you walk over your time with a startup? Yeah, well... So here's the deal. Now imagine that you are in a research group and like the research group develops a, let's say a new machine learning technique. In this case, it was self-organizing maps and uh, and like you, you find some interesting potential application areas for this technique. And now, of course, I mean, remember this happened quite some time ago. So of course, like the, the world wasn't as, as developed when it comes to commercialization of machine learning as these days. But I mean, there was this idea that, okay, we must have some commercial applications. And then now people were especially using this technique for natural language processing. I mean, things that people these days would call embeddings. And uh, okay, so the idea is that like, well, I mean, we can use this technique for NLP. So, okay, so what are some commercial opportunities for NLP? And uh, and like people had been, of course, using public data sets back in the day for academic purposes, but obviously there's no money in like classifying. Well, maybe some people thought that maybe there's money in classifying news and stuff, but I mean, not that exciting. And then the realization was that, well, many companies have large amounts of documentation and like all kinds of material inter intranets, inter internal like enterprise, whatever, like a document repositories. So why wouldn't we apply these NLP techniques to search like companies intranets? And like that seemed like a good business opportunity. And in a sense, I mean, it made sense. The downside was that like back in the day in early 2000s, like really, I mean, there was no intranet search whatsoever available. And, and like when we started building this, people were asking that like, can we just provide a Boolean search? Like nobody cared about, like imagine like even today, I mean, you could try to sell some machine learning based, like a fancy search engine. But I mean, in many cases, people might just say that, okay, can we have a basic search that I can search for keywords? And uh, anyway, I mean, that was a valuable lesson for me that yes, I mean, we had this really super fancy AI ML technique available, but I mean, ultimately people just wanted something way simpler. I see. So it's really like the innovation Technical innovation was ahead of the time, ahead of the market needs. Yeah, I think that that's the right way of putting it. But I mean, also, I think that there is something really fundamental about the fact, of course, uh, like also about the dynamic that you have smart people who come up with new techniques and they're enthusiastic that there must be like some use for this. And then you realize that it's the usual that like it's a problem looking or like a solution looking for a problem. And like, as, as they always say about the founding startups, that you should actually like start with the actual problems that people have and not with your favorite solutions. I see, yeah. And that's definitely probably going to prove valuable for your later entrepreneurial stint, as we're going to discuss in yeah. our conversation. But before that, I believe that, you know, after you finished school in Finland, you moved to the US, specifically in Silicon Valley, where you spent about four years as a researcher at Nokia. Mm -hmm. And you specifically work on big data infrastructure, analytics, and ML open source project. Well, my question is twofold. First of all, like, how did this opportunity come about? And, and secondly, like, what was some of your core uh, responsibility at Nokia? Right. Well, I mean, now to paint the picture, this was year 2007. And like for those of you who don't remember, this was actually just before iPhone was launched. So like a life existed before iPhone. So uh, interestingly enough, uh, just before iPhone, Nokia was the, by far the largest smartphone manufacturer in the world. 
and uh, now I know that especially in the US people don't even believe that smartphones existed before iPhone but I mean yes I mean like the Nokia phones had cameras they had like music they had all of it so like back in the day I was thinking well the funny thing is that like Nokia used to be the largest company in Finland I actually like kind of promised myself that I would never work for them because it seemed like the most boring <laughs> most obvious choice now back in the day then like they founded a new research lab in silicon valley with the idea that they had realized that the future of smartphones is going to be much driven by software and like they had also realized that data is going to play a big role and when i was like thinking okay so what are the big like macro trends in the industry like back in 2007 i thought that actually this mobile thing is going to be pretty big and like people were already back in the day talking about how you can maybe like do even this thing order taxis using your mobile phone and like using apps or like watch videos watch movies like listen to music and of course all these things actually ended up happening it's just that it wasn't nokia who made it happen but i, I found this fascinating and I, I wanted to be part of it so so actually like the professor of mine like who was leading the research group he jumped to nokia to eventually become the cto of the company so i, I kind of got an opportunity to kind of follow his footsteps and that's how I ended up there so and uh, I, I think again I mean that was a great great learning experience both technically as well as of course like business-wise how the world leading company then kind of lost its way a bit like kind of a, over a very short period of time. I see. I think based on my research you're working on a couple of like open source projects in Nokia right? Uh, one is called Disco and another one is called Ringo and yeah, that's I right. think I think both of them have a focus on databases and the previous generation of data processing technologies. Yeah. Would you mind like going over some high-level details on some of those? Yeah. So now, again, I mean, going back to that vision that Nokia had, that like data is going to play a big role. I mean, they had this idea that, okay, so there's going to be lots of data that's been, like that's going to be collected from the real world, like through these phones. And there was the question that assuming we are going to get terabytes and terabytes, which was a lot, a lot of data at the time of data, where are we going to store it? And now, of course, these days, I mean, there are many off-the-shelf solutions available, but I mean, this was like just about the time when Hadoop and MapReduce started becoming big. So the, I think that the original MapReduce paper by Google was published 2004. Then I think Hadoop started maybe around like 2007 or something like that. So, and, and like also another interesting development is that this was exactly the time when the key value stores actually like kind of became a big thing. I think that there was the, the original paper like about the Amazon DynamoDB that came out and that was a big one. And overall, there was this really interesting period like when many companies, many people were rethinking that like, what does it mean to do compute at large scale? What does it mean to store data at large scale? Of course, like trying to follow the footsteps of Google and, and other large companies. And then like, of course, these were exactly the relevant questions that we were trying to answer at, at, at Nokia Research as well. And like, given that there weren't that many mature off-the-shelf solutions available, especially in open source, we decided to start building our own. So again, I mean, that was a good learning experience. And like also when it comes to open sourcing something, starting to build an open source community. This is back in like 2010, 2011-ish. Like what is the general uh, perception of open source solution at the time yeah well i mean the, definitely that was definitely a something that people were almost expecting i think like of course like back in the day mysql was really big like i think i don't remember when uh, oracle acquired them originally but i mean there, there was the idea that yeah i mean oftentimes you can get like really high quality database solutions uh, off the shelf the same thing with compute so i think that the open source part was fine but i mean overall of course the part that was missing is that the cloud wasn't that big so there was always the question of deployment so how do you deploy something and like kind of the most companies including nokia had to build their own hardware and like set up their own data centers and stuff which like really complicated the overall open source story as well on the deployment side 
Yeah, thanks for sharing those valuable stories and insight on some of those initial projects. So you spent about like four years at Nokia, and in 2011, you and actually your brother Jerry co-founded a startup called Bitdelly that built a novel scriptable data platform. Can you share a little bit of the backstory behind this career decision? Yeah, well, I mean, this was like pretty much a direct continuation of the work I had done at Nokia back in the day. So at Nokia, I was leading the research team. Like we open source projects, and like they were kind of directly competing against the kind of the quickly growing Hadoop stack. And like we had the feeling that what we were doing with Python and then like at Bitly, like using the cloud-based stack, that was way easier, way more agile and fun than kind of the really heavyweight Hadoop Java approach. So there was this idea that okay, that like we could just make the stuff that we had been building at Nokia more widely available, like through the startup. And the vision there was that, well, I mean, it should be cloud-based, it should be Python-based, and and now, so it happened that back in 2011, especially many larger companies were not yet in the cloud. I mean, it was still quite new, and also Python definitely wasn't as prevalent, like for data science and and machine learning, especially in enterprise environments as it's today. So, I mean, I guess again, I mean, one could say that timing wasn't quite perfect with that startup. I mean, I think I'm mean, still like proud of the ideas and proud of the product that we built. We could do the same thing today, and it would be a decent product. And you like spend almost like two years working on that before the acquisition was. Was that just you and your brother? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was that? just like I mean, I mean, honestly, it's a usual like entrepreneurial story, like trying to find the product market fit. This was also the time, if you know, that there's this company called Segment that like a segment got started. Like we were actually like one of the first integrations in Segment. But I mean, there was like we were like trying to understand that like what's really the kind of the product market fit. What's the kind of a one use case we should go after. And uh, I mean, we were thinking machine learning. Of course, machine learning was way too new at the time. ETL. I mean, that would have been a good focus area, but I mean, it was so nascent at the time that uh, like we, we. I mean, now with perfect hindsight, I mean, that's probably something we should have focused on. But I mean, like didn't realize at the time. So yeah, I mean, like we just couldn't find the product market fit there. Bitdelly eventually got acquired by Adro around the summer of 2013, and as a result of that, you joined Adro as a principal engineer. Can you maybe share a little bit of the story behind this acquisition? Why does it make sense for like this particular buyer and you know this tradition yeah. to join them? Yeah, yeah, I think that that's a I guess like one important lesson there is that like since oftentimes these acquisitions are quite mysterious that like how do they happen in the first place? And I guess there was some saying that companies are never sold; they are always bought. That like the initiative always kind of comes from the buyer and, and like you can't just like, a, of course, like you as a founder, you love your baby, you love your company, but um, like ultimately, like it's the other side that like finally makes the call. And the interesting dynamic that happened in the case of Adroll is that first, I mean, they happened to be kind of a customer of Pitali that was way larger than all the other customers combined. So it was amazing. They were already at the time producing a huge amounts of data. And like we were kind of at the crossroads that do we accommodate this one huge customer or like do we focus on the kind of a large number of smaller customers then another kind of amazing like happenstance well maybe not the happenstance but i mean still like quite amazing that the cto of the company like was one of the first contributors to the disco open source project that i had studied at nokia so that's exactly the, what's important about these acquisitions that like if you come out of the blue and then like you have no connection it might be hard to kind of really convince them and so forth but because we had this at least like a weak connection in the past and like kind of they had known my work from the past i mean then it seemed that okay so there's something kind of it could be a good match here and they of course had infinite appetite for data processing systems or like kind of a ways to make handling data easier so i think that that was really a kind of a good outcome like for the company and uh, i was really excited about all the technical stuff that like adroll was doing and of course still is awesome yeah thanks for sharing the context and like sort of mental models that you went through to actually you know make the decision to sell your startup 
emphasizing more on some of the technical problem that you are excited about. So at Adro, you have designed Adro Prospecting, which is a new customer acquisition product based on petabyte scale machine learning. And you also help open source ShareDB, which is another project that powered the prospecting product and some of the other more data-intensive system at Adro. So could you mind sort of discussing some of the engineering challenges associated with these projects? Yeah. Now, if you imagine the problem, let's say like selling anything in the internet, one key part is to understand your buyers, understand your customers. And now if you want to do this in a data-driven fashion, like what you can do is that, I mean, like, like it or not, and this is of course exactly what why Facebook is such a controversial company. I mean, what one thing you can do is that you can try to follow the behavior and record the behavior of people and like understand that like kind of a, how do your customers behave? How do your prospective customers behave and, and so forth? And now on the technical side, I mean, putting the question aside that like, how do you get the data in the first place? Maybe you built the next Facebook. That's the way to do it or next TikTok. But I mean, let's say all these companies like AdRolls and TikToks and, and Facebooks in the world, what do you end up happening is that you get these data points about like how users are behaving, what they are doing. I mean, like they are visiting that website, they're adding this thing to the cart, they're adding that thing to the shopping cart and so forth. So now the technical question is that oftentimes the most interesting modeling problems are of the nature that, okay, so how does the behavior evolve over time and what are the steps they take before they buy something and like kind of a click, like a checkout on the cart and stuff like that. So you kind of get this like a trail of events, different events that these people do, and they are all kind of a keyed by the user ID. So basically your like a data schema looks like that you have the primary ID, which is the user ID of some sorts, could be a random ID. And then you have like a bunch of events ordered by time that are associated to this user, basically kind of the trail that they have taken to kind of reach some outcome. And now, of course, like you can definitely store data like this in a relational database. But one difficult thing is that it's actually surprisingly hard to SQL as a query language to query data like this, because it's oftentimes kind of like a over time, you need to have a window functions like that or like in SQL and it gets kind of like really funky. And like, plus the other problem was that you can have really lots and lots of data. So like we had trillions of data points and like dumping trillions of data points, even to any database today is, is quite cumbersome. So that was really the motivation for TrailDB. And actually it's... It's still a TrailDBIO. It's actually still a kind of a very valid piece of technology. So, I mean, like definitely if you want to take a look, happy to help you if you want to use it. So it's actually like another key lesson, like with TrailDB compared to the previous projects that I had studied at Nokia was that I wanted to make it something that's super simple to deploy. And that's why it's actually a C library that you can integrate with different languages so that deployment story is much easier than before. So basically that was the very specific use case. And indeed the beautiful part that we were able to do is that not only it's a piece of tech, but I mean, in this case, it actually solved a real business problem and it helped us to build the product that actually like ended up producing tens of millions of dollars of revenue. So kind of it actually became useful. ShowDB, is it only used internally at Adro or was there any other? It's open source, so uh, you can use it. I mean, of course, that's actually like an important lesson for me. I mean, when it comes to publicizing things that I then like kind of learned from those lessons with Metaflow. But um, mm-hmm. but yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's available. It's open source, but I don't think that that many people know about it. Yeah, I think during the research for this conversation, I, I watched one of your talk back in 2016 at the San Francisco Data Mining Meetup that talked more about TrailDB and, you know, uh, discuss some of the, the tangible business impact of that right. has experience. I'll be sure to include that in the show notes as well, just, you know, if anyone want to take a look at that and going over the technical details of that. Continue with your experience at Adro during the final year there, you became the head of data and, you know, basically leading a variety of efforts related to data engineering and machine learning as well. What were some of the valuable leadership lessons that you absorbed during this period? 
Now, if you think about this, like what we have been discussing this far, I started at Nokia building tech open sourcing and then like at my own startup, like where we really couldn't identify the product market fit and then like building this new product from scratch and like seeing it being launched. And then at this new role, I mean, it, I kind of finally clicked in my head. I mean, like how important it is to focus on the product. I guess it's a very like classical kind of a story, like for any technical person that you start being fascinated by the tech and like over time, you kind of mm -hmm. climb that ladder and then like you start maybe kind of seeing the bigger picture and how important it is to focus on solving the right problems and not only the interesting problems. And unfortunately, sometimes the right problems are different than the interesting ones. So in that role, I really started thinking much and I became really fascinated of the importance of the product and the product mindset mm -hmm. and how, especially like as we present these solutions, complex solutions to the users, what's their point of view and how we don't always have to choose kind of the fanciest approach. But I mean, sometimes something simple can be perfectly adequate as well as it's in the right context and it's presented the right way. Another big lesson that I learned, and this was, again, a big, hugely important for me, I think important, like should be important for anybody, is that often ML systems don't work in isolation, but I mean, the machine learning systems at some point, I mean, they kind of uh, interface with human beings. And like, for instance, at Adderall, we had these predictive systems and then the the predictive systems like try to help like the company's customers to kind of acquire more customers and have more sales. But oftentimes that there was some kind of an account manager or salesperson in between who kind of handled that like human relationship with the customer. And they were kind of sitting in between the machine learning models and then the customer. And the challenge now is that like if you have a machine learning model that does whatever it feels like doing, like it changes day over day, it produces, of course, like a constantly evolving results based on data and so forth. It can be hard, like for the human stakeholder, really to, to first understand and then secondly, explain that, like what's really going on there. And this can be surprisingly problematic because now you kind of, in effect, your product is actually composed of both the machine learning model, as well as the person who's kind of, a, in, a, in some sense, like not controlling, but I mean, like somehow working in conjunction with the model and like designing that interface and interaction well is actually a huge part of the machine learning modeling process. And not only that, the kind of the designing the model in isolation, because these models do get embedded in the real world and like how interfaces with the real world is a hugely important topic. Basically, you said two key things. First one is less on the technology, more focused on having that product-centric mindset to solve the right problem. And, and the second part is, sort of the human-centric approach where you want to care more about not just focus on the modeling aspect, but also on the user experience, user interaction, the workflow. Yeah, yeah and like how does the model really interface like with the users who are kind of supposed or like supposed to either use the model or are impacted by the models? That seems like a big inspiration for your later work with Matt. That's right. Yeah. Besides those more like product work, was there anything that you learned in terms of management, managing people, leading the teams, ensuring yeah. a good culture, things like that? Yeah, yeah. So definitely. Well, I mean, like first I learned about myself, about my strengths and, and weaknesses. I think that was really a useful learning experience. I think also like at that time, I started having a more refined understanding between the difference, like about the difference between uh, management and leadership. Mm. But there is a very concrete difference. I saw that there were some individuals who were absolutely amazing managers, and that's definitely a skill of its own. And then there are people who are absolutely amazing leaders. And like occasionally these people are not the same person. I mean, you can be a really good manager, maybe without being such a great leader. It's kind of paradox, but I mean, I think it's possible. And then like you have, I mean, at many companies, you have amazing leaders who don't have a formal, let's say a huge number of people in their organization, or maybe like no one in their kind of a direct management chain. And 
I think there are different skills. And I think it's, of course, I mean, there's a lot of cross-pollination. I mean, definitely helps to be a good manager. Like if you kind of have some inkling of the leading and, and occasionally leaders, I mean, it's useful for leaders to kind of manage as well. But yeah, I think that that's a, really a useful distinction to make and kind of took, took a while for me to really understand it well. I see. You aspire to be more of a leader type or a manager? Well, I, I think like what I do think is that I really value both. I think that occasionally, I mean, I guess, I don't know, let's use it as a, like a silly example, Elon Musk. In many ways, Elon Musk is a thought leader, in many ways, like inspirational leader. I don't know how it would be to be kind of a reporting to Elon Musk. I mean, maybe he's not the best manager. Yeah. So, and, and then like I have worked with some, the most empathetic, like kind of the most caring managers, like amazing human beings, but I mean, maybe not so that they would be the next Steve Jobs or Elon Musk, like a defining kind of the, what are the world changing products and stuff like that. So. I see. So really it's, it's good to like have characteristic of both. Circling back into your career, in 2017, you decided to join the ML infrastructure team at Netflix. Why did you decide to make this career transition? Well, I mean, my not so secret plan always like with that role was that I, given that the company was growing so fast at the time, I was hoping that they would make a quick exit and I could then like found another company because I still had like many ideas from the Big Delhi era and like I wanted to continue that journey. But um, the company is still around and like still doing well. But I mean, like, but at the time, I mean, there wasn't like any kind of a exit event. So then I started thinking like what to do next. So it happened that Two other people who I had worked closely with at that role, they had left for Netflix independently. I mean, just like a joint company. And also already like many years before I had seen the famous culture deck by Netflix. I don't know if you have seen the original one, I guess it's probably st still somewhere in the internet, but I mean, of course there's the Netflix culture page is still up and there's the new book by Reed Hastings. Like all of these documents, they kind of convey this idea that Netflix has a very particular kind of culture and like many ideas in that culture that really resonated with me. And also I was fascinated by the fact that they dared to say things that many other companies didn't dare to say aloud. For instance, they would like a fire, I don't know what was the term that they used in the original deck, but I mean, like if you are like performing well, you will get fired because performing well is not good enough or something of that sort, which is of course like a highly controversial. I think that they have toned down that messaging since because it sounded overly scary. But I, I found that fascinating. And of course, like I also saw that Netflix as a company, I mean, has a lot of potential. Also thinking that like what's important in the world, I mean, while well, entertainment is obviously important. So, and like everybody was studying to be more and more digital. So I, I saw that here's a company with great potential still. So anyway, so, and then like the main thing about Netflix was that then I happened to hear that they had this new greenfield opportunity, a new kind of an opportunity to build something from scratch, which was that they needed new kind of a machine learning infrastructure. And like, of course, like given everything that I had done in the past and the company, I mean, it seemed like a really a great opportunity. So I chatted with people at Netflix and uh, yeah, then in the end, ended up joining them. See, so just a combination of the company culture, the problem space that they try to solve. You know, sort of job background and how that fits in yeah. the context. And, and I adjusted like a very interesting, like a window of opportunity. As you know, at many larger companies, of course, they have many existing products. Of course, many people are needed to maintain the products and that's important work of its own. But every now and then there are opportunities that the company starts building something new from scratch. And like, especially for many, I guess, like engineering minded, builder minded people, the fact that you get to build something from nothing. I mean, that's always really interesting. Fabulous. Yeah. Thanks for dissecting the different key criteria that you use to make this period career transition almost. So I think like most people know you based on your work at the initial versions of Netflix, human-centric infrastructure called Metaflow. And this project was started when, when it was joined. It was later being open source for the broader public in 2019, which is documented naturally a blog post. Well, first of all, like 
Could you just briefly explain the motivation behind the creation of Metaphor? Yeah. Well, okay. So maybe it helps if I start by explaining kind of what was the situation and why they wanted to start building new kind of infrastructure. So machine learning infrastructure. Maybe many of your listeners know that Netflix has been or has been applying machine learning for a long, long time. So famously, they have this recommendation system that when you log into Netflix.com, you see all those TV shows and movies recommended to you. And that's kind of the crown jewel of, of all the ML efforts at Netflix. But at the same time, it's kind of like a tip of the iceberg that what many people don't realize that most ML projects that Netflix does, actually, they are not directly visible in the product. But especially as the company was becoming more global, it was spreading in all countries of the world, as well as starting to produce much of its own content, all the Netflix originals, they had realized that there are so many opportunities to apply machine learning in like computer vision, natural language processing, classical statistics, all kinds of things that like it wouldn't be only recommendation that they would be doing in the future. And now the company had the same situation that many companies are finding themselves in these days, which is that on the one hand, they had like plenty of infrastructure. So they had data warehouses, they had orchestration systems, they had compute platforms. And then on the other hand, they had data scientists and these data scientists are not necessarily software engineers by training. So not the ones to write Docker files, not the ones to interact directly with the CICD systems or things like Kubernetes. But I mean, domain experts in things like NLP and computer vision, but there was something missing in the middle. How are we supposed to give some tools like for these data scientists so that they can actually benefit from the existing infrastructure and now get these projects to some kind of a production as, as quickly as possible? So that was kind of the setup and that was the problem space. And interestingly enough, in 2017, the term ML ops didn't exist at all. I mean, ML flow didn't exist, Kubeflow didn't exist, SageMaker didn't exist. So there wasn't any kind of a template that this is what the system should look like or these are the best practices. But I mean, I remember at the time when I joined and I asked like people who had been thinking about this problem space that, okay, what should we build? And like kind of a nobody knew, nobody knew exactly like what it, what the infrastructure like this is supposed to look like. Okay. So, so there's no playbook. Yeah, no playbook. And, yeah. I mean, definitely many ideas and like many opinions and like, it's kind of really fascinating always when this like a new tech emerges, of course, these, there are always people who have done some things in the past and like different opinions and like there are of course like a widely different approaches how you could do it like starting from the very basic technical questions that like should it be in python should it be running on spark is it going to be distributed or is it only like all going to be on a single machine like really foundational questions yeah and just continuing that thread on building metaphor from scratch i was just taking a look at the documentation of the project and it said that you know metaflow's design philosophy is heavily influenced by the unique culture at Netflix. So can you sort of unpack some of the key design principles that like, summarize the philosophy behind Metaphor? Yeah, no, I actually like really appreciate the fact that like you have been kind of going through the, in a way, I mean, like what I had been doing, like my career in like chronological order, because now I, you can see the kind of the pattern here. So I think like you can pretty much like to pick the different like aspects of the philosophy of Metaflow, like from the experiences. So maybe I guess most of the mistakes I had done in the past. One thing that I, as I mentioned, I had already learned at Adderall and I guess before as well is this idea of human centricity and the idea that like for a tool like this, nothing else matters as much as the user experience. And, and this is a big philosophical question in a sense that on the one hand, like you might think that something like AI or ML is something that like our job is to build thinking machines. Our job is to build general artificial intelligence. And then like we can kind of get humans out of the picture and then the machines will just do the right thing by themselves. I mean, that is kind of a valid point of view. But if you take another stance, which is that, well, I mean, ultimately it will be 
people building these systems, people interacting with these systems, then like kind of really the viewpoint should be that like, well, I mean, then that model human interface is really what matters. And and that's why ever since the beginning, we started thinking that, okay, we are not here to build something that would have been impossible technically to do before. So, I mean, we can start with the premise that like everything is technically already possible, but nothing is easy enough. And like our job is to kind of make all these amazing things, let it be like using TensorFlow or like, let it be like running XGBoost at scale, like make them easy enough, like so that then people can like use their creativity and their domain knowledge to actually solve real business problems. So that's why the human centricity has been like such a core, like a value for us ever since the beginning. Then the other one like that comes with that is the product mindset. As I mentioned before, I had become really obsessed with this like importance of like really thinking about coherent product design. Oftentimes what happens with engineering is that you build features, all kinds of features that like you just happen to hear that like we should have distributed training, we should have experiment tracking, we should have hyperparameter optimization, all kinds of things. And you just like slap them together, but the end result doesn't really have any kind of cohesion. And that's why as like anybody who has used like a beautifully designed products, like products by Apple or like beautiful cars, whatever, you know that there's a certain nature to good design that like when all the pieces fit together, like when they're actually composable, that like you can take things apart, you can put them back together and like everything makes sales. That was really important. Then like one thing that I absolutely knew that it's going to be critical at Netflix, given their culture, is the fact that it's actually a pragmatic system. It's not just pie in the sky research thingy, but uh, like Netflix ultimately is not in the business of selling infrastructure. It's not in the business of even building infrastructure. Everything serves the end purpose of entertaining the world. So that's why we really need to build something that helps solving actual business use cases. So it can't be anything that, okay, here's, we can publish a paper at NeurIPS or something like that and using the system, but really has to help the company where the company is at. And then like, of course, like if you see the pattern, like all the way, like going back to the disco approach, it can be Delhi. I've been always very enthusiastic Python user. I thought that like, well, maybe finally now, I mean, the time is right to really promote Python. So we started with this, like a Python first approach. And that became so much easier after TensorFlow was released in 2015, because in contrast to 2011, when I was doing Bitly after 2015 with TensorFlow, now, I mean, Python was really ready for the prime time and like nobody would question anymore that, okay, can you use Python for large scale machine learning because Google is doing it so everybody can do it. And then like maybe the last point, the other one like was the integration with the cloud. So I had been obviously like using AWS at, at Bitly at AdRoll and Netflix is of course 100% AWS shop. So the idea that the cloud is here to stay and again, I, we can like integrate with the best parts of the cloud. So, I mean, that would be a really important part of the backend story there. Yeah. Thanks for sharing all of those so human centricity, product centric mindset, the pragmatism based on like Netflix focus on, on realness with less prioritization, cloud integration and Python first support, right? Those yeah. are key ideas that, that yeah. you kind of mentioned. And I think like you have given a lot of talks on a variety of conferences, in-person conferences in the past, and which I'll be sure to include this in the show notes that sort of discuss some of these, you know, philosophy related to metaphor design. I think one of the most memorable slides that everyone can refer to this day is the, the Denison infrastructure hierarchy that you put on. You know, there's like on top, it's like the thing that, you know, the scientists care about. And the bottom one is what actually required most of my effort. How did you come up with that diagram? Yeah. How did you like popularize or like, you know, make it well circulated within the community? Yeah, no, I have to say that that's a bit of a meme at this point that yeah. I think it was like really like just one of the slides amongst many slides. But I mean, there's something about that that really hit the nerve. 
And uh, yeah, it has started living a life of its own after that. So, I mean, honestly, I, I really can't take the credit for that slide in a sense that I would have really designed that, oh, this is the one. So I think it really just started spreading. I, I think that's the fascinating thing about social media and like internet overall, that you can't predict these things. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy that that resonates. And of course, the kind of the chart like really kind of encapsulates the idea of the philosophy behind Metaflow. And I also, what it really encapsulates is the Netflix value of freedom and responsibility. So Netflix has this idea that every employee has a lot of freedom to choose the best tools for the job, the best modeling approaches. I mean, in the case of data scientists and so forth. So we wanted to give them a lot of freedom at the kind of the top of the stack. Also like kind of let them work on things that they really enjoy working on. And then on the other hand, like there were things at the bottom of the stack, like very foundational stuff that even engineers like feel that like it should, it should just work. So if you're an engineer and like you have a, like something like Amazon S3, I mean, there's a feeling that, okay, so here's a file, store the file. It should never disappear. Make sure that it's always available. I couldn't care like less how you actually do it. I mean, just make it work. And the same thing maybe with compute that like you have a container, like kind of a, let me execute the container. I don't care like where you find the server to do it. You can keep going up the stack and like it is a continuum. And that's why I, I kind of like the triangles that it's not like a black and white that at some point you stop caring and start caring. But I mean, it's a continuum. Some people care a bit more, let's say about the versioning. Some people care less. Mm -hmm. But it's an important part there. So I think that it kind of like reflects the reality pretty well. Also, it reflects the interaction between data scientists and engineers mm -hmm. that oftentimes there's the distinction that like the data scientists tend to care about the different aspects than engineers. Both are important and I can see that they can be very complementary. Yeah, but I think we'll revisit this point about the data slash ML infrastructure stack later on in the conversation when discussing one of your most recent articles. But yeah, I think like you gave a lot of talks. That's emphasize the key that, you know, data scientists should focus more on data science and less on engineering, right? And then I'll be sure to put that in your show notes as well, just to let listeners to dive deep into some of the tension between science and engineering that you just brought up. Mm -hmm. And now just kind of revisiting your point about cloud integration, it seems like Metaflow has been closely integrated a lot with different AWS offerings mm -hmm. um, in order to make it easy for users to move back and forth between the local and remote models of development and execution. Can you talk just a little bit about some of the technical details on this sort of integration between Metaflow yeah. and AWS Solution? So I, I remember enthusiastically signing up to the beta of EC2. This was 2006 or something when they came out. And uh, I had been really following AWS closely ever since. And as I said, I mean, I kind of even kind of sought to work at startups that use AWS, like ever since Bitdelly that was all on AWS and Apple and Netflix and so forth. What I had seen happening is that over time, of course, AWS has become this increasingly complex ecosystem of different tools. There are probably hundreds and hundreds of different services available these days. What many people don't necessarily realize is that these services form a hierarchy of sorts, that they are these foundational services like EC2, S3, you have VPC, some networking. And then like you have maybe a, like a mid-tier services, like a database services, RDS, maybe something like Kinesis. And then you have these like top level services, like maybe something like a SageMaker that then are services provided by AWS, but even internally, they rely on these lower level services and navigating as a user, like navigating across like all these different layers and interconnected services is pretty hard. Now, the thing is that like, especially the lower level services are super, super powerful and they're going to be extremely cost effective. Like, so storing data in S3 is amazingly like high throughput data access, like no matter the scale. 
EC2, of course, makes life way easier than like racking and stacking machines by hand. Now, of course, like the higher up you go in this hierarchy, I mean, like the more it starts to be more like use case dependent, but especially with the lower level services, I think like more or less it's the kind of a default that like everybody should be using. I mean, not AWS specifically, of course, the same story is emerging with Azure and GCP as well. So with Metaflow, the idea was definitely that like there's absolutely no reason for us to try to reinvent any of these wheels, but we can help to kind of pave the path how people can kind of leverage these AWS services without having to kind of scratch their head about like kind of, okay, so what is the difference between step functions and batch and like EKS and ECS and Fargate and like that? It's just really, really complex. I think that this is honestly, I mean, of course, I mean, you see this happening already today that like many products are built on top of these AWS systems, like a Snowflake, the data warehouse is a great example of a very valuable company that is purely like running on the cloud stack. And actually, amazingly enough, I mean, they are kind of beating AWS in their own game by providing better cloud services than AWS can on AWS. And that's the idea with Metaflow as well, that now technically, of course, Amazon provides their own machine learning platforms, the portfolio of products under SageMaker. And in some sense, Metaflow is kind of a competing against them. But I mean, it both work in the same AWS ecosystem. So then it's up to the user to decide that, like, you don't have to decide first, like a cloud versus not the cloud, but I mean, rather so that, okay, do you just want to leverage the lower level uh, services with some open source interface like Metaflow, or do you want to go straight to the higher level services like SageMaker? And uh, I think that this is the kind of increasing the world that we live in, how different software systems are operating. That sounds like a great partnership that Metaflow has been able to rely on as we grow and address different needs of your existing and future users as well. And just talking about the users of Metaflow. So finding adopters is quite challenging for any open source project. So Metaflow has powered hundreds of business-critical ML projects, both at Netflix and at some of the other companies in a wide-ranging industry, ranging from bioinformatics to real estate. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, like, what were some of the hurdles that you know, your team had to overcome to find some of the early adopters, both internally at Netflix and externally later on? Yeah. So I guess I had the benefit that now Metaflow, I guess it's maybe like a third big open source project. I mean, at least in my eyes, in the sense that I had really invested time in. So, and a couple of things I had learned in the past with Disco a long time ago, I had started with this idea that I used this program language called Erlang. I mean, it's an amazing language. Everybody still like should take a look at Erlang. And I think it was technically the right tool for the job. But I mean, the unfortunate fact is that like, if you use any esoteric language, let it be Erlang or OCaml or Haskell or whatever is your favorite language, I mean, it really restricts the adoption. So, I mean, like even today I might feel that, okay, some other language might be a better tool for the job, but I mean, it just doesn't make sense. So that was the thing number one. I mean, like at least make it very easily approachable. Then the other thing about what I learned from TrailDB is that, yeah, well, I mean, it can be really good technical solution, but I mean, you really have to provide like everything else around it as well. And that's why even internally, like when we started pushing Metaflow and like the interesting thing about Netflix is that Netflix doesn't have any top-down hierarchy. There's no CTO, there's not the VP of engineering who would say that everybody must use Metaflow. But in that sense, even internally, we adopted the mindset that like we kind of have to quote unquote sell this as if like we were a startup. Of course, the dynamics inside the company are very different. But I mean, like we had to invest in things outside the code. And I, I think that this is very, very important for anybody who's interested in open sourcing that invest in the documentation. I mean, it's a no-brainer. But again, I mean, it can't be overemphasized. And it's a big investment. It doesn't come for free. And the second thing is that invest in support. So one of the big like success factors for Metaflow internally at Netflix was the Slack channel that we provided. 
where people could ask anything. And like, it's not only that like we were responsive on the channel, which I think it's important, but I mean, also the kind of a style we were doing it, like also like being human centric, like, and, and like having the high level of empathy, like even in those customer interact or like user interactions and understanding that like, it's an awkward situation. Like when you are trying to use something and like, of course, like I'm sure that like many engineers, many data scientists have the feeling you are using some open source package and like you are kind of a, hitting hitting some roadblock and like you don't know what to do and and then maybe you open a github issue or like maybe you like send a message to stack overflow and on the one hand like it kind of makes you feel a bit stupid that you are hitting that issue and like maybe everybody else has figured it out and you are just the dumbest one or like then also like that just the fact that it's kind of annoying that your work is blocked and like because of somebody else's stupidity i mean maybe they're kind of the authors of the library are stupid because they just made a bad api or something so in either case i mean there's a lot of like the emotional baggage coming up with that like a support interaction so understanding how to navigate that like uh, giving like really friendly answers fast i mean like being very understanding that it's not a nice situation for anybody to be blocked like to hit these issues also apologizing that it's oftentimes our fault like if something is kind of so confusing that the user did the wrong thing and so forth it's not the user's fault so all of those kind of a more human side of things i, I think are massively massively important kind of when it comes to open source adoption yeah, I see. So choose language that make the most sense. Investing in good documentation, having a solid like Slack channel to answer a question and provide support. And overall, the overarching team is really having that empathy for new users yeah. who, who like total newbies to the project and really. Yeah. And also then the fact that like you actually like just like simply use technologies that are widely adopted. Maybe, I mean, I love Erlang, but I mean, in that sense, of course, like a Python is 100,000 times more popular. So, I mean, you kind of need that reach and you might have the most empathetic, the best user support ever, like for your favorite language. But I mean, like if there are only 10 other users in the world, I mean, there's like very much a natural limit how far you can go. So, yeah, thanks for sharing those key points. Now, at the high level, Metaflow's future roadmap includes support for Kubernetes, improvement of UIs, and more flexible dependency management solution from what I'm seeing on the documentation. Overall, in general, how do you and your team prioritize product roadmap while developing an open source project? Yeah, that's actually a really, really tough question. And I think that's a great question. I think that should be asked more often. I, I hope many people, more people would actually blog about it because I think that there are surprisingly many failures in open source, like when it comes to especially the product management and kind of, in a sense, surprisingly few successes and the successes that exist out there. I mean, they tend to be very peculiar. Every project is a bit different. One thing as, as a kind of a role model is that, so it happened that actually Linux Torvalds, who studied Linux, actually like used to work at the kind of the same research group at the University of Helsinki, where I worked. I mean, like actually he left before me. So I never met him, but I mean, I had been always following Linux and the, and the Linux kernel development with great interest. And now when it comes to product management, some people may know that like Linux Torvalds is hardly a kind of a role model, like when it comes to behaving well and being inclusive and, and talking nicely and stuff like that. But if you look at the Linux kernel as a technical achievement, and especially not only like as a technical gimmick, but a long-term, extremely successful and like kind of the most successful project, like open source project ever, like one could argue. I think that there are some lessons that can be learned. I think that there are lessons about leadership that I think, I don't know, like if you can really make anything succeed with the, with the design by 
like really big committee. I think like even with programming languages with Python, of course, like Guido was a PDFL like for the longest time, although they of course have PE preprocess and so forth. Then there are like some other cases when you have had like a more of a committee style and then like you typically end up with a huge fragmentation. So that is definitely a very delicate and difficult balance. Also, I think that there's really some lessons to be learned about the fact that so many, especially UIs are actually like made as part of commercial products. And like so few UIs are actually coming. I mean, like really excellent UIs are coming from open source that open source tends to be really good at like developing low level infrastructure. But there is especially, I think it's a kind of a something about the product management, what makes it so hard to develop this, like a full open source tax. And then like a classical example is the Linux desktop that like for the longest time, people were saying that, oh, one day Linux will overtake whatever OS X or Windows. And it kind of never happened. And like even the, the biggest success, like Android and Chromebook, I mean, came from Google, like with very kind of strict product management. So anyway, so it's a, it's a good question. I think for us in Metaflow, the one big thing is that really the long-term health of the project that so many open source projects, they have the initial kind of attraction and then like the development gets slower and slower, not because people run out of ideas or like even that the users lose interest, but it's because of the technical depth and like just the maintenance burden, and especially with open source, when people are not paid, the idea that like you have to do refactoring some boring maintenance work, it's really hard to sustain maintaining the health of the code base so that we don't just get overburdened under the maintenance burden is really hard, uh, really important. Then the other one is the composability and like that, like coherent user interface that like all these different aspects of Metaflow experience, they kind of really fit together nicely. And it's not just a grab back of random features that get added there, like whatever, like people like feel it's the biggest itch that they want to scratch. But I mean that like these pieces actually fit together and like form really a product, a coherent whole. That's really important. So, and then like, also there's the question, like kind of how to use resources. I mean, I guess like pretty much like all open source projects really like kind of unpaid open source projects tend to be like a thinly resourced. You don't have hundreds of people working on it. So then the question is, okay, so where do you get the highest ROI? Like where do you get the most leverage? You don't want to implement things that only few people care about, but I mean, something that's really impactful. So you kind of need to be thinking about that. I really like your point. You mentioned that committee-driven style to open source really doesn't work. And basically, that means that you need to be more opinionated. Only a few people who actually make the decision and just go instead of like being democratic. I think the beautiful thing about open source is that like the barrier to entry is so low. Mm-hmm. That I definitely, I mean, if somebody said that, okay, don't make it democratic, I mean, there's some like a benevolent dictator. I mean, that doesn't sound so great, but the beautiful thing about open source is that anybody can fork the project. I mean, if you don't like Metaflow, you can click fork and you can announce that like you are now the new benevolent dictator for your own fork, or you can start a new project like from scratch. And like the barrier to entry is so low that I actually very much like the model that people who have a vision, people who have a certain point of view, I mean, they start pushing it and they push it as far as possible. And that's why we get the healthiest competition and like we get really kind of a, a rich ecosystem of different approaches. So if everybody like does committee by design and everything gets averaged out, like you get the kind of a mediocre solutions that all look the same. I mean, that's much less interesting and much less useful rather than having amazing individuals think that, okay, so I mean, here's a totally new way of doing things and kind of let's do it this way. And like, no matter what other people think, I think that that's great for the health of the overall ecosystem. Yeah, for sure. Just quickly go over some of the points that you mentioned in the previous answer, which is the long-term health of the code base, the composability of different modules within the library, and also how to allocate resources for people to work on different features, right? So just out of curiosity right now with Metaflow, what is some like a short-term metrics, maybe weekly, monthly or quarterly key metrics that you and your team are optimized for? 
it's an interesting question about the metrics. So I think like when it comes to really quantitative metrics, I mean, some numbers, I don't think that there are maybe numbers per se. Yet. Well, I mean, I guess the only thing is, of course, the usage and adoption. I mean, I think, of course, the idea is to make Metaflow something that actually like people find useful. And if nobody uses it, I, I don't think how to justify it to anyone that like no, anybody should be working on it. So in that sense, I mean, of course, like a driving adoption is important. But I mean, more so, it's more on the qualitative side that what are the kind of, as I mentioned about this, biggest leverage, like features that we should be implementing. And I think just recently, we actually released support for Kubernetes. And Kubernetes is an interesting example, because first, I don't think that data scientists should use Kubernetes directly, or like it's relevant for them, but it's actually highly relevant for engineers. And for us, implementing the Kubernetes support is the way, on the one hand, like to get access to different clouds. So Metaflow doesn't have to be only used on AWS. You can use it on Azure, you can use it on GCP, but also so that like as many companies have already installed and deployed the Kubernetes clusters and their engineering teams have made a commitment that they want to use Kubernetes, it kind of makes, again, sense to meet the users where they are instead of saying that, okay, so, I mean, your ML platform needs to run in a totally separate environment than your the rest of your infrastructure, because ultimately, I don't think ML should be an island. I think it should integrate like with all the rest of your infrastructure. That's kind of ultimately how you can produce value with ML. So, and that's why, I mean, like Kubernetes is something that is actually like quite strategic for us. So common usage adoption and thanks for sharing that example as well. Now, let's take up your engineering head and put on your photo head. So since March of 2021, you have continued the Metaflow journey with a new startup called Out co-founded with Sabin Goya and Oleg Adif. Mm-hmm. So can you share the story behind the founding of the company? Yeah. Well, I mean, the story is quite simple in a sense that, as you mentioned in the beginning as well, um, Metaflow was open sourced at Netflix 2019, and it was always a bit of an experiment that let's see if anybody cares. And then towards the end of 2020, like we started getting many questions like from other companies outside Netflix asking that like a Netflix support them in kind of as they are like adopting Metaflow. Of course, like you can imagine that Netflix is not in the business of supporting other companies. So I, I mean, as the manager, like quite concretely as the manager of the team, I face the problem that how much we can prioritize the open source work and then supporting these other companies that occasionally had some feature requests that really weren't that relevant for Netflix at all. Like for instance, many companies were asking for support for Azure. Netflix as of today, as far as I know, I mean, doesn't use Azure. So it wasn't that like a high priority for them. Although, I mean, it was obvious that it was high priority for other companies. So then we really like a face this like a like kind of a soul seeking moment that okay should we tell the community no that we can't support you which obviously wouldn't be great for the long term health of the community or like should we actually start doing it full time and yeah I mean then like eventually like decided make the leap and like leave the really nice job at, at Netflix Netflix is an amazing company so I mean that obviously wasn't easy but I mean at the same time the opportunity to kind of help all these other companies felt even more exciting so we are still working very closely with Netflix so we are of course like I have a very active like a joint community now, I mean, developing metaplots. And also, can you maybe provide some notes on how do you choose your co-founder? Yeah, well, that's a good question. And I think that's always a sensitive question. And I think my philosophy is definitely an important relationship. And like the same thing as with many other relationships that it always takes time to learn the other person. That's why, I mean, I don't know how easy it is to just go to like a founder dating site and like click a button and say that, okay, you are going to be my co-founder. I do believe that it's useful if you know the people from the past. 
So I knew Oleg from Adroll. I had been working closely with him for many years. Savin like, was at my team at Netflix. I knew him for a long time. He had been leading the open source development. So it was kind of a like really no-brainer in, in both of these cases that I knew these people. Also, interestingly enough, Oleg had been working at this feature store company called Tekton. So he had been like kind of a very much in the same domain. So, I mean, it really felt like an amazing founding team. Honestly, I mean, for me, of course, the kind of a big question is that like, do I get both of them excited enough that like we want to do this together? And like, luckily, both of them said yes. That's very cool. Yeah, thanks for sharing those. You mentioned that obviously that community aspect is a very big component of Metaflow and now with Out of Bounds. And as you get more and more requests from different companies and just like a lot of different things in general, in order to grow the project and eventually the enterprise product, if you want to build a company, then how has you and your co-founder started engage this contributor in a way that can provide valuable product feedback? That have you achieved that sort of that long term goal? Yeah, that's a good question. I think like Metaflow couldn't have been made possible without the very tight interaction that we had at Netflix, like with the data scientists, like who are actually building all these different kinds of applications. So I think a couple of things were really critical, like in the early days of Metaflow. One was that like, we got to be exposed to a very wide diversity of applications. So it wasn't only one application. Oftentimes what I see happening at other companies is that there's a one key application, kind of like recommendations at Netflix that drives the development of the platform. And then you kind of overfit, which is not the bad thing. I mean, that's kind of what you're supposed to do. One application is what you need to solve. I mean, you solve that one application or maybe self-driving cars. But I mean, we had a different situation that like we got to interact with many, many different kinds of problems, which was really, really important. And the second one was that like the data scientists were open enough that they allowed us to work closely with them. Like we were helping them, sitting next to them. So that was important. And now Definitely, like we want to continue doing the same at Outer Bounds and like with all the companies in the world. I do realize that the dynamic is actually quite different. Of course, like at Netflix, everybody got paid like the monthly salary, like by the same company. So there wasn't like any kind of a commercial incentive per se. I mean, it's co more complicated, of course, like in the outside world. But what we are now trying to do with the Slack community that we have at slack.outerbounds.co is that we are inviting like everybody just to join the community. And like, we are trying to provide the same level of support that the teams at Netflix got from us. But I mean, now publicly and like at the same time, of course, like we are super curious to learn. I mean, not only like kind of how people use Metaflow, actually, like not so much about that, but I mean, rather so that like, what are the real world problems there? facing and and the challenge there is that it's very hard to get the high quality information that what are the actual pain points there like so many strains like psychological biases and like social dynamics like what you reveal what you don't reveal i mean one of my favorite examples is always dependency management that somehow in order to do machine learning you have to install tensorflow or you have to install pytorch And people can spend inordinate amount of times like fighting with their virtual environments and like trying to get PyTorch installed or whatever. And then, then eventually they manage to do it and then they build the model. And then when you ask that, like, okay, what was the hardest thing about the model? And then they say something about like figuring out like what's the right like activation function or something. Well, that wasn't the hardest part. The hardest part was to install PyTorch in the first place. But somehow it doesn't feel so glorious and it maybe feels that like, well, I mean, it kind of, you are really dumb if you are not supposed, if you can't install PyTorch. So you kind of don't get that information. So anyways, back to your question. So, I mean, we really want to understand that, like, how are people actually spending their time? What are the actual business problems they are solving? Not only the fancy, fancy demo cases, but I mean, like really basic linear regression problems in the world that are super valuable for businesses. And I think I'm equally fascinated about those use cases compared to the fanciest GANs that people are building and like making demos. So. Yeah, and I definitely include the link to the site group in the channel as well. Definitely like, has been active in that channel. 
and then a lot of conversation and detailed documentation that people can join and get support super quick from your team. A big part of startup journey is hiring, especially it's even more critical for early stage startup. Out of our startup back in March, so it's close to seven, eight months since you started, right? What are some of the valuable lessons that you have learned while doing interview and talking with potential candidates or employees in order to attract the right people who are excited about your company mission of building human-centric infrastructure? Yeah, that's a good question. First, I mean, if you had asked me a few months ago, I would have told you that I, I don't know. I mean, now I have a bit of a better idea now that we are about 10 people. After seven months, I think one key part is that in this day and age, people are used to the fact that kind of all information is available online. You can look at the people's Twitter accounts and like you can maybe look at their Instagram accounts and like you can look at whatever they have published in the blog and so forth. And I think that it can be hugely valuable because the thing is that like making these career choices, it's a big choice. It's a very, very important choice. I mean, in many ways, of course, financially, but also how you get to spend your time. So, of course... I really don't take it lightly. I mean, having been, of course, like so many times on the other side of the table, evaluating different career options that like, well, it's, it's, it's something that like, I really empathize that like when people are making that choice. And now I'm pretty sure that like kind of the most smart people out there, I mean, like what they do is that they try to do their homework and they try to Google that, okay, who are these people? Like, what are they doing? Why they are doing it? Have they done it before? Like their full like track record, also like trying to get an idea, especially like in an early stage startup, like you are on the one hand, like you are kind of joining the idea. Are you do you believe in this idea? Does it resonate with you? But I mean, also largely you are like joining the founders, you are joining a team, and then like understanding the team, understanding who these people are, what they have done before, like are they behaving nicely and, and stuff like that. I, I think it's important. I think in our case, it definitely helps. I mean, open source, I think helps there tremendously because open source makes every single line of code, every single commit, it, it, it becomes public. So you can evaluate the technical quality. Also, you can evaluate the types of interactions people have online. You can evaluate the blog articles and you can kind of really form that the cohesive picture that, okay, who are these people and like, what are they about? I think it like underappreciated. So definitely if anybody is like thinking about starting a startup eventually, maybe not even today, I think like starting to kind of share more about yourself. I mean, with that idea that, well, I mean, when you want to work with other people, they want to know you and they want to learn about you. And like, also, I think that the important part is that I think it's to a degree, you can try to fake it. You can try to build some like a fancy public persona. But I think like being authentic as well, I think like people are pretty good at seeing the authenticity or, or the lack of it. So I think that's why, I mean, like just like kind of being yourself, like speaking with your own voice. And I think that the self-selection happens. I'm pretty sure that like many people have decided not to join us or not even contact us because they just see that, okay, not my type of people. But then on the other hand, like the people who contact us, I mean, they have already, I believe in many cases, done the homework and realized that, wait a minute, I mean, these are the type of people I want to work with. Absolutely. And, you know, just kind of curious forward looking a little bit, but I suppose we want to grow your team in upcoming quarters and years. So what are some of the like exciting both product and go-to-market initiatives that about will focus on in next year, for instance? Yeah, good question. I think like, of course, like we have all kinds of ambitions. I mean, the big challenge is to prioritize and like stay focused on things. I think it's hugely exciting times in the industry because like so many companies are really like trying to find solutions and like also the technical stack on the one hand, like in some parts it's maturing fast in some other parts, it's much lagging behind. So it's really interesting landscape right now. Mm -hmm. So for us, I think even if you look at the types of positions we have open today, on the one hand, like it goes without saying that like, well, if you are a software engineer, like if you know Python code, like if you are enthusiastic building machine learning infrastructure, of course, like we would like to chat. So I mean, definitely reach out to us. 
also graphical user interfaces. If you are a front-end person, like interested in building delightful web applications, have that product mindset. Again, I mean, goes without saying that that's important. Interestingly enough, we are, like, as I mentioned before about the documentation and this, like other sides of the product besides the code, we are like taking that very seriously. And like, we want to have people who have also background in data science and machine learning, not so that we would ever necessarily become ML consultants and building the solutions by ourselves, but more so that we can really empathize with that user pain. And if there's a user like who says that like I've been like trying to train distributed PyTorch model and my data loader is behaving badly so that like if you have done it before you at least you can kind of connect to that idea or like maybe there's some like a modeling problem that you have they are complaining about so I think that's why having people with that background is useful also then like on the infrastructure side having people with the experience with the cloud again I, I think that the cloud and like building solutions that also not only resonate with data scientists but resonate with engineers is hugely important having people who have experience with AWS with Kubernetes so forth. So definitely a big focus as well. Since you asked like what are the big initiatives, I mean, definitely, of course, like a continuing advance, the open source community is, is a huge priority. And like at the same time, really trying to understand that like, is there something of value that we can provide commercially for our businesses? So, I mean, what are the most valuable pieces that they would like to, let's say, get from us as a service or like as some kind of like a software piece? So that's of course like the landscape that we are actively investigating. Yeah, thanks for sharing all those details, you know. So like infrastructure engineering, front-end, focus on the UI, and Malcolm Sardin to push towards that human-centric thesis that you're providing, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely excited to see more of the company grow and more product innovation coming from Metaflow and out of house in 2022. Now, the remaining two questions, circling back to your professional career. At the moment, you are writing a technical book with mining called Effective Data Science Infrastructure, which is a hands-on guide to assembling infrastructure for data science and machining applications. What have been some of the biggest challenges you encounter during the writing process thus far? Yeah, I guess the first one is the obvious one. It's a lot of work. So I guess that goes without saying that it's a crazy amount of work. So, you know, when the publisher approached me, let's see, summer 2020 for the first time, like first I was hesitating, but I was at Netflix at the time. But as I mentioned, I felt that documentation is really important. I was asking myself the question that like, what's the point of even like writing, especially technical books these days, because all material is available online. But then I thought that like, well, I mean, like these topics are quite complex and like it feels that every blog article, every presentation, like when you talk for something for 20 minutes, it only scratches the surface, but at least it would be useful to have a one place where we could have all this information in a kind of a single source. And that's why I thought that, okay, so, I mean, that seems like a good challenge. I, I remember then the publisher said that like, well, I mean, typically it takes a year to complete the book. And I was laughing that, well, I mean, a year is a long time and never going to take that long. And now I mean, it has been like about a year and like, here we are. So still two chapters to go. So yeah, that's one thing. Another interesting one is that actually like when writing a chapter, like I always start by developing the examples. What are the kind of a, the examples like around which the kind of the, the chapter gets structured? Just like a thinking that like, what are some like a concise technical, like a fully standalone examples that like exemplify the points actually like takes quite some time to develop. So I mean, like people maybe don't appreciate that aspect like of technical books, just think that oh, you just like write like a boring technical prose and like there's nothing to challenge But actually like the big challenge there is that like, well, I mean, somebody needs to write those examples and like make them make sense and also hope that they don't become obsolete too fast and so forth. I see. So I suppose like when you think you're going to finish the book, like realistically. I think like now, hopefully like the last two chapters will be finished like over the next couple of months or so, and then it will take some time before they do the post-production. So I think the book will be available on print next spring. 
But I mean, like, of course, it's now available online uh, as for early access. I mean, the beautiful thing about the early access is that you can give feedback and I can still like change things. So um, you can imagine like changing things after it's on print, it's much harder. So I think that's a great opportunity. And yeah, I mean, definitely like all the proceedings from the book will be donated to good causes. So uh, I really do hope that many listeners will go and buy. Obvious. So finally, probably a bit about your high-level perspective on the whole space, this ecosystem in general. So you and Hugo Bob Anderson recently wrote this great O'Reilly article that digs deep into the fundamentals of ML as an engineering discipline. In particular, the article explained why data makes the treatment of ML applications different, what the modern ML infrastructure stack looks like, and how the stack can be applied in practice today. So yeah, could you mind unpacking some of the most relevant takeaways from that article? Yeah, well, I guess like one motivation for writing that article is that oftentimes these days you hear the term ML ops being dropped and like it's kind of interesting that like all kinds of companies now announce that they are ML ops companies. On the one hand, like, of course, I felt silly that suddenly like people start slapping a label like this in different contexts and it's really unclear what it even means and like it feels that it confuses more than clarifies. So there was this idea that, well, we should answer the question that like, do we even need a label like ML ops? And in order to answer that question, like we started thinking by ourselves that, okay, so is there a need for a new label? Is there anything different about developing these ML applications compared to traditional software engineering? Maybe it's just that like we are just like writing new types of software and like kind of eventually it will become as mainstream as anything else. And we don't need any new terms. And the kind of a key premise of the article is that there is like a one key point that makes this like development of ML applications different than traditional software. And it's really data. And the reason like for that is that now through data, these applications get exposed to huge amount of real world complexity. I think that there's a, like a crucial difference, of course, like if you have some like a super like isolated simulation or something that the data is kind of artificial, but in most cases, like you get all kinds of like a random, like a real world stuff. I mean, like, let it be Android, like kind of a collecting information, what kind of ads people click or like a Netflix collecting data about what kind of movies people watch. But I mean, there's a lot of complexity in the world. And now the big challenge is that with ML applications, all that complexity kind of like goes directly into your models. I mean, by definition, like you just want to feed the data to the model. And the result is that there is so much complexity that nobody can like fully comprehend how these systems work. It becomes very opaque. And I think that that is really a fundamental difference compared to traditional software engineering, where the idea is that like you as a programmer, you kind of model the world and like you define classes and like, okay, so here's my person class and the person has whatever, like two subclasses, employees and like employers, whatever it is. And like you kind of a construct a box world, like a simplified world of sorts. And the point is that like you, if you are like very familiar with the system, you kind of know how all these pieces fit together. And there isn't like this crazy amount of complexity. And like, that's how you're able to build these systems. And that is fundamentally different. And like, that's why the tagline of the article is data makes it different because data does make it different because this also has implications to the development process that instead of having this intelligent design that you sit down and like think about the classes, think about the interfaces and APIs, you kind of start doing the iterative development with data. I mean, like you maybe explore data in a notebook, then you kind of build some small model, you see how it performs, maybe you deploy it to A-B test and you keep improving, but it's a very different type of development process compared to traditional software engineering. So that's kind of what the article is about, like trying to explore this space and like what are the implications then to the software stack and like the way how these things are built and so forth. So yeah, I think that kind of, of course, this is maybe kind of a first exploration of many, I mean, like along these lines, but I mean, at least I'm happy to see that the ideas seem to be resonating. 
I think towards the end of the article, the conclusion basically said that that over the next few years, this ML infrastructure will mature and the user experience will converge and eventually beyond some of the existing data-centric IDE, right? And then also like business will learn how to create value with ML similar to traditional software engineering and really like what you just said, empirical data-driven development will become much more of a emphasis mm-hmm. for most small and mid and big organization. Yeah. Most of the metaphor is going to be part of that. Yeah, yeah, I think that like it's kind of fascinating if you think about the long arc of computing and programming overall, like what programming looked like in 1950s, what it looked like in 1970s, what it looked like in 1990s. So some things stay the same, and but I mean like some things change. And now I mean I think that it's like a data-driven programming is kind of a new paradigm that is probably here to stay. Fabulous. So Will, at this point of our conversation, I want to move into the final closing segment, and we're going to ask you three rapid-fire questions, and you can keep quick answers for the listeners. Okay. Number one, name three people in the machine learning infrastructure community whose work you admire. Oh gosh, well, I don't know. I mean, okay, so the first one is definitely Michael Jordan, like the Berkeley professor. I would definitely recommend anyone to to watch his YouTube presentations. He has a very, very clear-headed view about ML and like especially what AI is and like what it isn't and like how actually like many of these problems are actually like much about really kind of economic problems and like also building systems that interact with humans and like human society. So really, really amazing person and thought leader. When it comes to human-centric design in ML systems, ML infrastructure, I've been actually always a big fan of this project called Spacey. I don't know if you know it, but it's an NLP project coming from Germany. And like, I think they are really absolutely a role model when it comes to documentation, the API design. And I don't know, actually like exactly the people who are behind it, but I mean, like kudos to all of them. So that's definitely a role model. And maybe then, like, since you ask about people, somewhat surprising answer is actually there's this guy called Hadley Wickham in the R universe. I don't know if many of your listeners use R, like, of course, maybe they're not the sexiest language these days. But what I really appreciate their work at the R studio and like Hadley's work in particular is that they are like very much thinking like from the first principles that what are the kind of the tools and like what are the concepts that you need to build these data-driven applications. I think that their work is like really underappreciated because I mean, I guess it's again, I mean, going back to my comment about Erlang that it kind of happens to be done in the wrong language to put it bluntly. I think that they are really doing really amazing, amazing work from the ground up what, it, what the stack should look like. Yeah, extremely that Michael Jordan Hardly Wickham and the creator spaces, I think Ines Montani and Matthew Hannibal. Very yeah, cool. that's right. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for sharing those. And I'll be sure to put their name in the show notes as well. So number two, name one book that you would recommend for engineers to cultivate an entrepreneurial mindset. Okay, well, that's an easy one. So there's this book, like a very short one, very easy to read. It's called The Mom Test. I don't know if you have heard of it. It's all about getting valuable feedback from your users and customers. And honestly, I mean, if there's one book, especially like if you, well, actually, like even if you're not entrepreneurial, but even if you are like ever thinking of building anything that anybody else is supposed to use, which I guess covers like pretty much everybody out there, I think it's a good book to read. And like the, the whole premise of the book is that if you just ask the users what you should be building or like ask them to give feedback about what you have built, most likely you will get wrong answers and they might horribly, horribly mislead you and you end up wasting a lot of money and like a lot of time. So, I mean, don't do that. Read the book and like learn a better ways. Fabulous. And then finally, imagine that you can send out a single tweet to all the early stage ML infrastructure engineers on Twitter. What could you tweet about? I'm actually like a not the Twitter pro, I guess like it probably needs to be some kind of a meme worthy content or something, but 
I guess like if you had asked me that, okay, so what advice overall, I don't know, like if it's best given on Twitter, but I, I think overall, I mean, of course, like my bias is to think that humans are here to stay and like it will be humans building all these AI systems. And that's why I mean, developing that really a high level of empathy that like what it means to actually use this. And I, I think that this is such a strange thing about the engineers that engineers in my experience tend to be very irrational and emotional people who feel very strongly about API design feel very strongly about the support, all that stuff. But I mean, then when it comes to them designing systems for other engineers, then somehow often them that get lost. So I think, I mean, keeping that in mind, it's a winning formula for whatever you do. So. Yeah, I think that's a fabulous way to end our conversation that emphasis on human-centric. And that's been a theme throughout your career as well. I really enjoy learning about job education backgrounds that in Comsci, in Helsinki, some of your earlier startup stint and your time working at Nokia, Beat Daily, Agro, and Netflix, building a variety of open source projects and cultivating that product-centric slash human-centric mindset to some of your work that enable this organization to build and develop internal ML applications faster and more efficient. I also really enjoy learning about your current journey with Outabouts, a variety of you know, design philosophy, hiring culture, and in general, a community engagement that your team has been working on and definitely excited to see more some of the initiatives that your team will be putting together in the next years as part of the evolving data science slash ML infrastructure stack with the rest of the industry in general. So be sure to include all the blog posts, GitHub reports, like community and talks that you have done so far into the show notes. So listeners can have a chance to take a look and dive deep and then check out some of the great work that you have been working on with Metaflow and with Outabouse. So I really enjoy our conversation and appreciate you spending time with me today and hope you have a fantastic rest of your day. Yeah, likewise. Thanks a lot for thoughtful questions. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.